Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Shari Backstein. Shari is the CEO of The Weather Company and has had an incredible career there in sort of two tenures, so we'll touch on both. But if I read it right, Shari, you were there many, many years ago. I was. I'm a boomerang, or I like to say I've had two tours of duty now. I'm on my second tour of duty. But yes, I went to the Weather Channel very early in my career and then then made a big shift and came back about 14 years ago. Great. So we were just talking a little bit before we got on the air about uh, the great state of Georgia, the great city of Atlanta. We both share roots uh, in the Peach State, a place that you have called home for many, many years, a place that I love dearly. And uh, I'd love to start by going back on your career working as a line producer way back when at WGNX, going back Geez, about almost 30 years by now. And uh, to me, I had a similar background working as an intern at something the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had called the Video Edition, which was a very progressive, at that time, uh, initiative where they basically built a broadcast studio onto one of the floors in the Journal-Constitution building downtown and created what was then not even cable television program, Shari. It was on Metro Channel 13, uh, which I'm not even sure I knew or know what that was, but it was pre-cable and they took all the various uh, sections and columns and columnists and the paper and gave them television shows, which we produced right on that newsroom floor. And doing that kind of work, you were a paid professional as a producer. I was an intern, but that experience was invaluable. So I'd love to start with your tenure, give or take three years at WGNX. Yeah, you know, well, WGNX uh, also started very similar to Metro 13. It was channel 46, so it wasn't even one of the main channels, right? And so uh, eventually it became CBS, but it was such a great experience. You know, actually, my degree is in journalism. My goal in life was to be the next Katie Carrick, right? I was going to be a news anchor, uh, and therefore I interned as well at channel 46, and they hired me. What was interesting is they hired me as a sports reporter. So I was one of the first women that went into locker rooms to interview athletes. And I'll tell you what, that was terrifying to do that. But, uh, you know, I quickly moved up within the ranks and became a, a news producer. You know, my goal was to be a reporter. And I did a little bit of that. But then I fell into producing and really liked being able to manage a show and put a show together. Um, and it really was, it's a fascinating, different pivot in my career from what I thought I wanted to be, but I really, really just loved it. And it was, it was such a great experience working at a local news shop. And you must've done something right. You got uh, an Associated Press Award for sports reporting. I did. You know, it's funny. I played sports growing up, but I wasn't like that involved in some of the sports. I remember my first assignment uh, went into work back then you wore skirts and heels and, you know, the whole nine yards uh, working in the news organization. And they said, you're going to go cover NASCAR today. And I was like, NASCAR. I had never been to a NASCAR race. Uh, And back then, obviously, we didn't have the internet, so you couldn't just Google and find out all your information. So uh, my photographer who drove up with me, Pete, um, I picked his brain, everything he knew, read everything I could possibly read on the way up, went there on the track, uh, wound up interviewing, you know, the winner at the time, 
did not know you should wear earplugs on the track. I mean, I had a NASCAR race in my head for three days later. It was amazing. I knew that coming out of college to get a job at a top 10 DMA television station was really unheard of. You know, usually you had to go to a very small market. Actually, I got, I had a job offer in, you know, uh, Great Falls, Montana, but I wanted to be in Atlanta. My family was in Atlanta. I wanted to be where all the action was. And so I knew at the time, you just had to do whatever job came along. Like I would, my mother said, sweep the floors if that's what they want you to do. And so I went into the sports reporting a couple of days a week, took sports scores and just learned as much as I could until I could work my way into the newsroom, which was really my love at the time. And, you know, so that's just what you did back then. You know, you did whatever you had to, to get ahead and to get the job eventually to prove yourself. And that was a really interesting time in Atlanta, the 96 Olympic Games. I had interned for the Atlanta Chamber about 10 years before that, when the idea of bringing the Olympics was first surfaced by a guy named Billy Payne, and where the Georgia Dome was an idea that was written on a, a bar napkin at, at Reggie's Tavern. Talk about Atlanta. It's become such a huge, huge, you know, force in so many areas of business and culture. But that was sort of the beginning in many ways of let's call it Atlanta 3.0. Oh, yeah, definitely put Atlanta on the map as as being this international city. Obviously, we have a huge international airport, um, but it's such a great town. It's a great town if you're a foodie. I mean, you're in the, it's everything um, that New York is, but in the South, right? You have theater, you have, you know, uh, great food, you have great opportunities from a professional perspective. It's a great place to raise a family. Um, and so it has everything except the beach, right? Everything except the water. We are landlocked, um, but certainly have a lot of lakes. So it really was, it's such a great town, such a great way to grow up and experience all types of business uh, and has definitely you know evolved through the years. What's interesting, uh, you mentioned the the Olympics, you know, I was a producer, uh, actually, I was the lead producer at the time at, at GNX at that time when the bombing happened, I actually won an Emmy uh, for that coverage. I was actually down there that night and was going home and heard about the bombing, ran into the office and the station and produced a show for the next 12 hours uh, on that. And it was uh, really just an amazing time in my career from that perspective. And of course, winning an Emmy is always exciting. Absolutely. And that daily pressure, if you will, of let's call it a pressure cooker of live television, you took that with you to your first stint at the Weather Channel, uh, leading a storm tracking team. And it doesn't get much more real time and live than that. So can we talk about how you got to what was then the Weather Channel, that first go round, which lasted give or take four years? Yeah, sure. You know, the pressure of the live news is is really a thing. I mean, you could be building your show for six hours in the last 30 minutes. It just explodes because something happened. And so there's definitely a lot of pressure. And I think it was actually that pressure that made me um, consider going to the Weather Channel. They actually had been recruiting me for about two years and finally went over and interviewed for the position. And I was like, okay. And they made it really appealing. And at that time, you know, television news, you were making no money at all. I actually had to work two jobs uh, 
selling cosmetics on the side. Um, and so, you know, uh, went to the weather channel and I'll be honest with you, the first few weeks, I'm like, what have I done with my career? This is such a slow pace, right? Uh, and, and you're covering weather who watches all this weather, you know? Uh, and then in time I started writing a lot of their long form documentaries. So back to writing and what I loved, and then went on the live team and boy, did that change my life. It not only, I got to see some of the most amazing things from a science and weather perspective, but then I got to see some of the most horrific things and how weather can so impact and forever change people's lives. And it really created the passion that I have today to run this company because we are a very mission-based company um, and to, you know, do good and helping, you know, to forecast the weather uh, to help people stay protected. But I mean, there's some amazing stories. It was such a great time in my life. We had such a great, really close knit team. And we went out and traveled and, and did all of this storm chasing. Um, and it was just uh, really life changing for me as well. Amazing. So jumping to the present, and we're going to jump back in a moment. But, you know, when I think of the weather company and and what you're doing as global head of Watson Advertising, which you ran also for a tenure. And Watson Advertising many years ago was actually introduced at Advertising Week. And, you know, that is very much latest and greatest technology driven, finger on the pulse. You know, you're sort of ahead of where things are in many respects driven by uh, technology. Talk about what you were dealing with then. It was a very different era of technology and you've sort of had a front row seat to how technology has fueled what happens at uh, what was the Weather Channel, now the Weather Company. Yeah, so I think, you know, it's an interesting position I sit in because we have the weather aspect, as you mentioned, and the advertising. You know, when we became part of IBM about seven years ago now, you know, there's this expectation from our marketers and our customers that we were going to start using AI in all the products that we provided because we are now part of IBM, this major behemoth tech company. Uh, and so we really uh, took that to heart and made a pivot to say, you know, there at that time, there wasn't a lot of AI being used in advertising, right? Um, and so we started on that journey to educate part of the industry to create, you know, tech products that were using you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning, you know, to help drive business results. And so we were really early on. Now, here we are 2023 and AI is the conversation. And I'm really excited about it because I'll be honest, through the years, the adoption has been really, really slow in advertising. It's been very gradual. And then all of a sudden now we have this, you know, very uh, pivotal moment here for us. But it was it was a great experience for our team because being part of IBM really helped what was really thought of as a media company, as the Weather Channel, uh, become very sophisticated in technology. And my team is very proficient in machine learning and AI. And so we're definitely ahead of the game as it relates to at least just having that skills that's sitting within your organization. Um, and so that's been great. On the weather side, you know, we've used AI before it's actually coined AI in our forecasting, because at the heart of what we do, we look at a lot of different inputs, 100 different weather models or inputs. And then we use AI to derive what's that best forecast, you know, and then 
we take our meteorology and our meteorologist human uh, over the top is what we call it. So it's that combination of man and machine that actually delivers that forecast. And so it's been great to continue to invest in forecasting. I think it's so critically important because our climate is changing. You're just seeing so much erratic weather happening. And so, you know, having the ability to continuously invest in that to improve, I think, is has been really uh, transformational for the business. Okay, so we have a lot more to dig into, but you made a point that I'd love to dig a little deeper on, and that's that the advertising industry has been slow to embrace AI. And while it is absolutely the flavor of the month at the moment, the reality is AI has been with us for quite some time. Talk about the industry's relatively slow, almost, I don't want to say ignorant, that's too harsh a term, but, but you know, not taking advantage of all the knowledge that's out there about what it can do to help power great creative and media. But talk about your perspective there and that notion of a slow embrace, which I happen to agree with. I think sometimes in an industry, and maybe it's just all industries in general, if it works, why change it, right? And so if the traditional way you're buying media or creating advertising is working, you know, why really change that, right? Unless there's some major benefit. And so I think that, you know, with AI, it's, you know, it's been a buzzword for so long, but I think there's been this lack of understanding about what it really is and what it can really do for your business. So in the sense of, you know, we created a product that helps um, marketers create more creative quickly. So instead of having a creative team create three versions of an ad, you can use AI to create a hundred versions of an ad, right? And so there's an efficiency factor in that. But there's also the AI and the underlying technology that we really need to be applying. Um, and so I think it's just like a lack of education and understanding of, of how to use it, you know, the benefits, you know, and I think now we're seeing it. We're seeing it primarily because it's become uh, in the forefront of the consumer, right? With, with chat, it's really been brought out into the consumer. So now there's these consumer expectations that, you know, things that we do as an industry that we're smarter, right? We know what ad to serve to me because that's what's more relevant to me. And that's what, at the end of the day, what consumers really want. So now I think there's been this uh, consumer expectation is lifted. So now the industry is trying to, to rise as well to, to meet that expectation. And so I find it to be a very interesting time. I think it's exciting. I think, you know, there's certainly challenges, you know, with, with some of the things that we're seeing. But overall, I think it's pushing all of us to innovate to the next, you know, evolution of what the advertising industry can be. And that's, that's exciting. Uh, absolutely. So as a, a landmark, if you will, your take would be it's the consumer awareness embrace of AI, be it some silly app that, you know, changes faces around or something more substantive, that's what's different now? Well, it definitely has brought the exposure level up and the expectations up, right? Because now it's been put into the hands of the consumer to use versus, mm -hmm. you know, just big tech companies or, or tech companies trying to figure that out. So I think that's part of it. I think the other thing, which is a catalyst, which we've been kind of talking about a lot, is all the changes in consumer privacy and all the changes that are happening within big tech as we look at targeting, right? AI is a solution for that. 
And so now as that clock is ticking on all of us who are open web publishers with cookies and identifiers going away, everyone's starting to look at solutions and they're finally realizing what well, AI is a technology that can underpin this now transformation that we have to go through as an industry. Um, and so then it's become a little bit of a forcing function of how we use that, you know, as, as an open web player, and advertisers, we sit on a tremendous amount of data, right? But what do you do with that data, right? It's data, you know, you say data is the new currency, right? Well, data is worth a dollar, right? But how do I make that data worth a hundred dollars, right? That's when you apply science to it, you combine data, such you use AI, you use machine learning to derive insights. Like what does this data mean how do I make a decision with that data? Um, and that's really that next evolution. And you can't do that without a sophisticated science like AI or machine learning. Let's go back to that first tenure uh, and dig a little deeper there. Being on that storm tracker team, there must have been some moments, some stories. Uh, uh, my head gravitates to that great movie. It was Helen Hunt. Yes. My husband calls me the original Helen Hunt <laughs> twister. I think that's right. That's a good one. I think there was a ride also that we went to at, at Disney World or Disneyland. From yeah, that, I think, I think or MGM or one of those MGM, studios. Yeah, one, yeah. maybe it might have been Universal. I should know that. But go back to that period. Anything particular come to mind that was particularly memorable? Maybe you got yourself in a situation where it was a little uh-oh moment or stories from people who were impacted by storms, which you referenced. Oh, I have, I have so many stories. I'll, I'll tell you a few of them. I, I remember one night, and like, let's talk about the awe of nature. One night we were out, uh, you know, in Tornado Alley, so out in the Midwest area. And we used to go out there every year and we used to study with the University of Oklahoma. They had this big truck that had a Doppler radar sitting on top of it. It was called Doppler on Wheels. And we would travel all around with them studying tornado formations and tornadoes. And so we would travel for hundreds of miles a day chasing like a superstorm cloud that we hoped that would deliver a tornado. And so we used to go out there every year. I remember one time I was out there and in one night we saw eight tornadoes touch down. It was unbelievable. Now, these tornadoes were in the middle of nowhere, so, so no one was impacted. So you could really appreciate the science and mother nature. And so that was like all inspiring. But unfortunately, I've also been there uh, in Oklahoma when a mile wide tornado hit down near Norman, Oklahoma. And it was devastating is not even the word. I mean, when you looked around, I mean, homes were leveled, grass was picking up out of its roots. It was just dirt. I mean, it was, think about a mile wide and something that big, just ripping through a town and just picking up everything in its wake. And it was, you know, I was there covering that and, and you wind up, I, I just remember just sitting there in the car, calling my mother and just crying because I was like, mom, these people, everything that they worked for in their whole lives, is just gone. You know, how do these people rebuild? It was just, but then you see the best of humanity, right? This is when people, this is when we're all at our best because everyone leans in to help each other, you know, no matter what. And it's, it's such an amazing thing really to witness, but a couple interesting stories out of that. Um, this one gentleman, 
he was taking a bath in his apartment and tornado came, came through the apartment, lifted him in his bathtub, carried him about two miles, landed him like as gently as possible in a field with the water still in his bathtub and him sitting there <laughs> once in his apartment and in a matter of minutes sitting in a field. Like, could you imagine like what just happened? <laughs> it's like something out of the Wizard of Oz, right? Um, there was that story. And then another story, one of the, the uh, sheriffs that we were working with, he was going through a neighborhood that had been totally um, wiped out and saw what he thought was a like a, someone's baby doll or rag doll in the in the mud. And then it started moving and he went over and picked it up and it was a little baby. And the baby had gotten ripped out of its grandmother's hands during this tornado and the baby survived and everything was, was fine. Um, but just, you just witnessed the power, you know, of a storm like this. Um, and so those were some interesting tornado stories. And then, you know, the hurricanes, you know, I, I got engaged I was in Puerto Rico covering a category three hurricane. We're in this hotel room. The water's just like seeping through the walls and we're doing this coverage. I, I call my now husband and I'm like, Hey, just checking in. He goes, you're in a category three hurricane on an Island. You cannot get it off. He goes, when we get married, maybe you should consider changing careers. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe it's time to put up the storm chasing, but it's just, you know, it's just some amazing stories of, of uh, what people go through, the resilience that people have, but then just this powerful weather and mother nature and how powerful it can be. It can be so positive, but it can be so destructive too. So it's uh, definitely some, some great stories, amazing team building. That's for sure. You, you get to know your team members really good during a storm. <laughs> well, certainly true colors come out in, the, in those circumstances. I have a pretty vivid memory of going through the Ninth Ward in uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And I, I think unless you've seen that type of devastation, you cannot imagine, you know, what actually happens. I mean, Katrina in New York... I think was the was it the big one or what was the big one we had in New York? It wasn't Katrina. It was another one. Uh, there was Hurricane Sandy. Sandy, right? So many people on Long Island, including family members, lost their homes. The devastation and and the impact and weather does not discriminate: rich, poor, you know, urban, suburban, from Oak, the plains of Oklahoma to you know uh, an office uh, in New York. I remember in Lower Manhattan where all the power and equipment was on the 14th floor of the building and the water rose that high uh, and all of it was destroyed. Give us your sense. I read recently that one of the big insurance companies, State Farm, is pulling out of the state of California because of concerns about weather and the fires and they just can't pay all the claims. Talk about what you've seen in terms of the increased impact of severe weather and and sort of where the weather company fits in that conversation, because you are in many respects uh, a very central player. I guess we're jumping around here, sort of the peripatetic nature of the weather, you know, sort of guiding our conversation here inadvertently. But I'd love your observations on, you know, the weather as a, as a central driving force of so much of business and culture and society today. Yeah, so I, I think what's interesting is that Weather is responsible for nearly half a trillion dollars of economic impact every single year. And that's growing. 
because our climate's changing. And so when you think about our weather, it's becoming more erratic and it's happening outside of the seasonal norms. And so you think about tornado season, um, you know, we're here in the spring. So you think about that, but actually you're seeing a big tornado outbreaks in November and December of the past couple of years. So outside of that seasonal norm. And so what's happening, it's, you know, catching a lot of companies off guard because they're not prepared for that. Um, and so that is where I believe that every company actually needs a weather strategy. Because when you start to think about it, there's very few things the weather does not impact, whether it's your growing season, if you're making cotton, or it's your logistics and your transportation, um, and certainly from an insurance perspective. Um, and so companies really need to start thinking about, okay, how does weather impact all the aspects of our business? And what is that strategy? And then, you know, for us as a company, and how we see our responsibility is to provide that forecast. So how do we continuously improve on our forecast to make sure that we are providing the best possible forecast so consumers and businesses can make decisions, but you have to have a plan. And so any company that's not thinking about that and planning for it, they are going to get caught off guard, right? And, and then that's going to be bad for the economy. It's going to be bad for, um, you know, decisions that they have to make because, you know, it's just you know, the dollar impact is just enormous. And do you see at the federal level, the state level, the local level, the required investment uh, that we need to make in our infrastructure? That's a big, big variable. I'm going to guess I know the answer here. But when you talk about scenarios like here in New York, where, you know, the Midtown Tunnel can be flooded pretty easily, and, and forgive me for the New York reference, but this is true of any city, state, locality in the country. What do you see? And do, do the feds in particular, do they come to you and say, hey, can you help us out on this? Yeah, so there's certainly a lot that needs to be done from an infrastructure perspective. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, our planet is shifting right? Things have changed. Uh, we're building more than we ever had before. And so you have to take all of that into account because you're, you're seeing a lot more, um, I mean, certainly big cities, it just seems like we just keep adding and adding and adding more infrastructure and, and more buildings. And so all that has to be taken into account for, and how does that change how weather can impact your city? And so it definitely is something that, you know, you constantly, again, have to continue to plan for and to understand. And we probably don't do enough of that, right? It needs to be revisited, you know, periodically more frequently than I think it ever has before. And this is where I'm seeing some of the biggest impact is because we don't have the right infrastructure. Uh, we haven't really made those plans. Um, and then some of it too, is the forecasts have to change in those areas. What's the, how has the topography changed? within a cityscape, for example, and how does that cause flooding, you know, in the case of, um, um, you know, the subway situation in New York, but there's other areas as well. So, you know, again, it's weather has to become a strategy and something that is paid attention to continuously, not just something like, oh, it's hurricane season, let's pay attention. Yeah, no, so well said. All right, we're going to go back to your, your journey, but, you know, it's such an interesting conversation. And on, on the flip side, we spend some time every year in Arizona. My wife's family lives in Scottsdale and they've got the opposite problem. The Colorado River, I believe feeds the water of, I think it's seven states and the river is literally drying up and they can't agree 
on a strategy because no one wants to make any sacrifice. Everyone wants the other state to sacrifice and or sort of the way of doing things now. And this is not a comment on Democrat or Republican, but but the methodology we have in this country for something like that that's difficult is to kick the can down the road. And cl clearly that's not working. Yeah, you know, with the changing climate, water scarcity is definitely going to be a problem in the future. I mean, you already see it, obviously, in parts of the world. Um, but, you know, I think living in the U.S., we take for granted because we have water everywhere. I drink, you know, drink water all the time. It's just so easily, you know, accessible. Um, but, you know, when we start seeing these drought situations, I mean, California has been under a drought for a long time. Now they had this influx of major you know, deluge of rain, right, faster than they needed it, but at least it helped, you know, that problem just a little bit. Um, and you're seeing, you know, we've had a very heavy uh, snow season out in those areas. So you're starting to see this snow melt, but it's not going to get it back to the levels that certainly um, the areas need. And so it is, you know, again, very erratic climates, you know, that are happening and we have to be prepared for both of those. But yeah, you know, you definitely have politics that way in there. They sure do. All right, let's get back to you. We had a big, big digression there. So your career, Sherry, is, is marked with a lot of firsts. And one of your other firsts was joining RMS, which at the time was the first digital company in the outdoor space, a genre of media that has really, really managed to navigate uh, in a very positive way. We've seen various genres of the media a newspaper and magazine in particular really have a hard time. We've seen others, radio and outdoor coming to mind, that have really been reinvented with digital and given new energy. You had a great run there in the content and programming arena at RMS uh, down in Florida. Can we talk a little bit about that part of your career and how that deep immersion in the content space really helped set you up for what would follow in your second tenure? at the weather company. Yeah, you know, working in RMS was such an amazing experience from a lot of different aspects. But yes, it was a digital out-of-home company before digital out-of-home was really a thing. I mean, the company was ahead of its time. We had created a proprietary technology that allowed us to deliver custom playlists to anywhere we created what we called television networks at the time. And so think about big box retailers where we were in, you know, liquor stores, pharmacies, and we would create custom content um, all with the goal of increasing sales within that store. And so very creative ways to do that. Um, these shows were some of the most creative work that I've ever experienced from this team we would have the best times just doing brainstormings of, of how to create the content. Um, but, you know, we also had like a music channel. So you may, do you remember Sam Goody or Media Play, some of those stores? Of course, of when, course. When we used to buy albums and CDs in stores, right? Um, and so I actually produced a music show and it was so much fun because I got to inter uh, interview all of these um, musicians and stars and they would come to our facility in, in South Florida and, it was it was just so much fun and so much creativity. And I'm a creator at, at heart, you know, I'm product and creating. Um, and so it was such a great way because we were a small company. Um, you were scrappy. You had this really advanced technology. Um, but we had a few challenges because at that time, 
the hardware was expensive. Televisions, big televisions were expensive. Um, you know, so there were some challenges. And so I learned a lot about running a business there, P&L, negotiating clients, product, running a team. I also learned what not to do as a CEO there as well. So, you know, you learn both ways. I'll, I'll tell you a big opportunity, a big miss for the company and eventually why I left. We did these television networks and we had a major, um, you know, QSR company that was our client and they wanted us to do a menu board. And at the time, my husband also worked at the company. He's in charge of all the national accounts and he brought the opportunity to the CEO and said, we should do menu boards because it's a cost savings. You can change out menus by region. It's just, it's so impactful. And it wasn't the core business that the CEO had been on and he wouldn't make the pivot, right? Because he just held firm to his idea. His idea was going to be successful and couldn't see the opportunity or the problem that we could solve for so many outside of even just QSR, you know? Um, and so we did not venture down that. I'll tell you, Matt, I cannot go into any kind of a restaurant with digital menu boards without getting just a little sick to my stomach. Cause I'm like, that was such a huge opportunity. And look, look what it is today, right? That is the means by which menu boards are put together today. So it was, you know, it was a very, um, the CEO had a great vision and, and with digital out of home, it just so ahead of our time, but it taught me so much uh, in my career. And actually most of the people that worked there were still really, really close um, together. We get together every, a couple of times a year. And it was just, it was a great experience. And you then end up back at the weather channel. Yeah. So, you know, here's the interesting thing. I, I, I feel like sometimes in my career, I'm a late bloomer as it relates, because I was very focused on television and video creative. I mean, I've produced everything except a major movie, right? Commercials, infomercials, music videos, et cetera. And I knew that I needed to make a switch. I knew I needed to go digital and I needed to just stop what I was doing and kind of start over in my career. That coupled with my mother became very ill and I wanted to get back to Atlanta to be with her. So I'm like, even though I had a thriving career, I was the vice president of this company, did very well. I was like, you know, sometimes you have to take a couple steps back. And so I did that. And I made that change in my mid thirties, totally switched careers, moved into digital product uh, and creating, you know, digital uh, assets and went back to the weather company. Fortunately, I had a very good friend who brought me on as a product manager, I had never really did, done digital product in my life. But I'm like, you know what, I, I can figure this out, took a huge page pay cut, but it was important for a lot of reasons, personal and professional, because I could see the industry and where it was going with television and that digital was going to be the thing in the future. And so I, I made that switch and so thankful that I did. But when I really look at my career, it took me about 14 years to go from a product manager to the CEO of the company. Um, and it's just great learnings along the way. What a journey and, and what a story, Sherry. Talk about the digital landscape in 2007, a, a little bit different. The iPhone was about a year old. YouTube at some point uh, came out in 2007. Uh, most of the technology, certainly all the whole ecosystem that Watson operates in did not exist at all in 2007. Talk about what digital meant then 
uh, and your observations of the journey in the 14 some odd years that followed and your rise to CEO of the whole enchilada. Yeah, you know, in 2007, it was all about the web, right? Every Everything was about the web. It was about building big web platforms and, and enabling search um, and, and understanding SEO and how you could drive acquisition to your web platforms. And, you know, mobile was coming on the scene, but mobile took a while to, to really, you know, to get started um, and to really take off. Um, and at some point, you, we all saw that switch from web you know, to mobile. Um, and so it, it was a really interesting time. What I think is interesting, Matt, is back then we were creating segments and identifying people based on their behaviors and what they did on our platforms. And that we all moved away from that because the cookie came and did it for us. And now all of us are going right back to where we were about 13 years ago and, and trying to do that to, to monetize. Um, but it's been such an interesting journey to see technology, but then the journey's been much faster because we had phones and now we have wearables and now we have apps in our cars and now we, you know, smart speakers. And so the technology and the distribution for, in our case, weather data or any data, consumers are wanting it from so many different devices um, that you've had to, you know, quickly adapt to all the changes in technology just from that device perspective. Uh, amazing. And, and the very definition of product development, product management has just changed so much. Oh, sure. We went from being waterfall to now we're agile. Uh, I think that's been the biggest shift, you know, in the past decade is on how the process by which we work and how do we work, um, you know, in order to get products out. And I actually think that's been a good change. I think, you know, the agile um, helps you find more productivity, uh, you know, in the work that you do so you can get things out much faster. Otherwise you get left behind. I mean, you, you have to ship quicker. You have to build quicker to keep up with um, really the demands of what your consumers want. They have high expectations, you know, Absolutely. So we share sort of two things in common. One is our mutual affinity in time in Atlanta. Uh, another is we've both sort of been with the same operation for a long period of time. Uh, I, I, I joke, I've had the same email address longer than just about anybody I know. <laughs> You're in a similar category. Your email address may have changed uh, pre or post IBM, but more or less uh, a, a similar tenure in length. Talk about the weather company pre IBM, and then let's get to that period, give or take seven years ago when IBM came into the picture and how that has turbocharged and really accelerated your growth as a company and changed your journey? It was interesting, the acquisition into IBM, because what I think people questioned was like, why does IBM want a weather company? But when you look at it, what we are as a company is we're a data company and we specialize in weather as that data, right? And so just what we were talking about earlier, enterprise businesses need weather data and they need weather insights to drive their businesses. And so it was really smart thing for IBM to bring that data in-house. We also had an amazing backend system, an IoT platform that was going to be the foundation of uh, IBM's IoT platform. Now, IBM has changed the strategy where we're hybrid cloud and AI um, and through the years. But what I think 
there's been so many benefits being part of this big tech company. And for my business, you know, we've, we've stood pretty autonomous as a company, first of all, but my engineers and our designers, they have learned so much about machine learning and AI. We've been using it for years in, in our products, privacy by design and some of that hygiene and DNA that's so important now that companies are kind of hurrying up to try to understand. We've been doing this along the way, being part of IBM. So from that perspective, you know, it's it's been such a benefit, the training that the team has, not only from a technical perspective, but from a leadership perspective, some of the best training, uh, I think out there, um, you know, to help people grow as professionals has been, has been great. I think the biggest challenge for us has been our team trying to fit in on how we fit in exactly, you know, and really what we wound up being was an amazing showcase for IBM technology, right? Because we are a hybrid cloud company, you know, we helped to uh, help them grow with IBM Cloud when that was being created because we have such massive scale, 400 million users. And during hurricane season, you got to scale up pretty quickly. Um, and so that was really beneficial. And then we brought AI to the consumer because we're using Watson within our products. And so uh, IBM's an enterprise company, but we have such a consumer outward face with so many hundreds of millions of consumers we actually brought AI to those consumers and some of the products that we did, whether it's our, our flu algorithm or our allergy algorithm. Um, and so it's been such an amazing value exchange, I think, between uh, both companies, uh, you know, with the acquisition. Great stuff. So let's, let's go back, Shari, to something you mentioned earlier. I'm sure it's only been turbocharged being part of the IBM family. And that's the notion of AI as a solution in the advertising business, especially with so much changing uh, around the cookie, around increased focus globally on privacy, various parts of the world, more aggressive, progressive than others in terms of consumer protection. But talk about the role of AI there and the central role that IBM and Watson is playing in crafting that. Yeah. So what I think, you know, from an advertising perspective, we think about the cookie, it's been pervasive. It's all helped us, you know, serve our advertisers, but it's all been in the past, right? The cookies tell you where you've been, where consumers been, what their interests are. AI brings us into what's happening right now and helps us get to the future and be more predictive in nature. So we can then plan for the future. And that's very powerful for a marketer. It's very powerful for um, a, a publisher like me who wants to create a personalized experience for my consumers, you know, consumers actually expect personalization. Now they don't want to customize, right? They don't necessarily want to do it themselves, but they have this expectation that you're going to provide them a personalized experience. And so why shouldn't I be able to have Sherry's weather app look different than Matt's weather app, right? We have that technology, machine learning AI helps us to do that. And it becomes a better user experience because it creates relevancy, right, for your products. And so this is where AI, from both the advertising perspective um, and a media can be so impactful because it all puts the consumer at the center of what you're doing. So marketers want to reach those relevant consumers and consumers want a relevant experience. So it's a really it's a good win in bringing all three pieces together between the marketer, you know, the publisher, and certainly the consumer. And so, it, like I said, I, I think that 
it's a great time for people to be exploring AI and really leaning in before cookie goes away. The other thing that I think is important, and we talked about this a lot last year at Cannes when we were there, is ethics and uh, you know AI ethics, right? And how do we make sure that we're building AI in an ethical way, that we're building it with a non-biased approach, right? Because at the heart of it, AI is built by humans, right? You 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 built the foundational models and, and everything. It's built by humans. And so you have to have that diverse team building the AI to start with. And then you have to constantly look for biases in your algorithms. And so there's no better time for our industry as advertising to build all of this new technology, but keeping in mind, let's look at bias along the way. So we're not, you know, not intentionally, eliminating certain segments that might be interested in your products, right? But it just happens because that's, that is, you know, bias, it happens in AI. And so I think that that's an important uh, thing as well to look at as we start using this, what are the ethics around it? What are the bias controls around it? So we're making a better, you know, technology in the future. Well, you are right at the center of some of the most important and challenging conversations our industry is facing. And uh, I, I love this conversation with you. Talk about the experience of becoming a CEO as we start to wrap. You took the helm at an odd time in business and in culture in the midst of COVID. Talk about building culture and that evolution in your journey to chief executive officer. You know, I didn't set out to be a CEO. I really didn't. I, I loved the work I was doing. I always wanted to keep moving up. You know, I told you about the big pivot that I made in my career. And I had uh, told myself in two years, I would get back the salary I lost and everything. And, and I did. And so I was really content, you know, moving up the ladder and just taking on more responsibilities. And then, you know, this amazing door opened. And I thought to myself, am I ready for this? I don't know if anyone's ever ready to be a CEO because it's it's really different than what you think it's going to be, uh, at least in my experience. But I love this job. I mean, it is a dream job. It is the team that I have worked, you know, arm in arm with, with years. I've built a really strong leadership team. It's very diverse. Half of my team are, are females or women, very strong women. And it's, it's been an amazing journey. And you're right. I took over the helm right as COVID was kicking off. I became interim CEO May of 2020. Um, and that was tough because not only did you have to keep driving your business at a time where advertising definitely was, you know, uh, on a downside, but then you have to deal with all of your employees and changing the way that you work. And so it's, it was a fast, fast education. And, you know, so much about being a CEO is really about leading your people. And so really understanding that shift, that was one of the, the aha moments of how important a strong team is having great people that work with you. Um, and then you have to have a great product, right? Those two things make this success, a successful company, in my opinion. Um, and so, yeah, it's been an amazing learning experience for me. It's been quite the journey. We got through COVID and we thrived, you know, a couple months after we went on this streak of 10 quarters of growth, everything was, we were turning things around. Uh, and now, you know, we're making that shift again because we're finding that, okay, we need to change the way we work again now because I need people back in the office, things have changed. And so um, it's been a lot of, you know, people, 
leading and managing, but, but it's been just a great experience. And the fact that, you know, again, working for an organization that's very mission-based, there's very few companies that can say that you actually are here to help people and save their lives. Um, and that's something that my entire team, we rally around and the culture rallies around. We believe that, and, you know, we, we work hard to, you know, to provide that service every day. So it's, it's, it's been a journey, but definitely a highlight of my career. I love coming to work every day. You can't ask for more than that. And you, earlier you referenced, you know, mission-based and your answer there just really manifested, you know, the very essence of mission-based. And I, I can't thank you enough for joining us. This was so much fun and I, I'm available anytime you need me. If you need me to tee off at uh, East Lake or any of the other great courses down in Atlanta, I am, a, I am available at popular prices. So yeah, let's do it. That it's some really great golf in Atlanta. And uh, you know, I travel to New York often. And uh, so, yeah, it's great. I love it. I belong to a lovely place here. I'd love to have you as my guest. Sounds like a date.